Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. The Roman legions are the most famous fighting formations of the ancient world. They existed in one form or another throughout the Roman Republic and Empire. The longest-lived of all legions, Legio Quinta Macedonica, was raised by Octavian, the future Emperor Augustus, in 43 BCE. Its final action took place 680 years later in the defense of Byzantine Egypt against Muslim invaders in 637 CE. The legions underwent a process of constant evolution. The word legio, or legion, means levy, and the legion referred at first to the entire Roman citizenry under arms. But as Rome expanded and its military strength grew, the army of the Republic became split into two or more legions. Another key change that occurred during the early Republic was that the state came to financially support Roman citizen soldiers. Like the armies of Greek city-states, the army of the Roman Republic was a militia force composed of amateur soldiers. As a condition of their citizenship, the Republic required all Roman males between the ages of 17 and 46 to fight in up to 16 campaigns. When called into service, citizens had to buy their own arms and equipment. This requirement meant that the poorest Romans were exempt from army service except in dire emergencies. Originally, the citizen soldiers also served without pay. However, as the Republic became engaged in more wars that required longer campaigns, the citizen soldiers were taken away from their homes and livelihoods for increasingly prolonged periods. The government of the Republic therefore had to provide them with pay, which enabled them to support themselves and their families while they remained with the army. How the Legion fought also underwent a critical shift. Under the influence of the Greeks, the Romans of the early Republic had fought as hoplites in a phalanx. Over time, the Romans broke up the phalanx into smaller units and distributed these units into distinct lines. Furthermore, the majority of troops in the legion ceased fighting as heavily armored, spear-armed hoplites. Instead, they became more lightly equipped, more mobile swordsmen. The ancient sources are largely silent about why and how this process occurred. Modern historians of Rome have advanced a number of hypotheses. One is that the new style legion was a tactical response to the Romans' encounter with the Samnites and Gauls, who fought as fast-moving, hard-hitting warrior bands. Another hypothesis is that as the Roman army increased in size, more and more citizen soldiers were unable to afford the expensive hopelight panoply. They opted for less costly gear, which then required changes in fighting methods. And yet a further hypothesis is that the phalanx, which, as we saw in our episode on Thermopylae, depended on collective solidarity and downplayed individual feats of prowess, fit awkwardly with the Roman cultural value of aggressive competition, which in turn required individual displays of bravery. The psychic and social needs of the legionaries therefore forced a change to a more dynamic style of combat. By the beginning of the 3rd century BCE, a Roman legion was a unit of 4,200 infantry and 300 cavalry. The combat power of a legion resided in its 3,000 heavy infantrymen. These infantrymen were organized into 30 subunits called maniples or handfuls. 
Each maniple was in turn divided into two sentries. The maniples were deployed in three lines. The frontline troops were called hastati, or spearmen, and they consisted of younger men. They numbered 1,200, divided into 10 maniples of 120 each. The second-line troops were called the principes, chiefs, and they were men in their prime. Their numbers and organization were the same as the hastati. The third-line troops were the triarii, third-rankers. These were the oldest men, the veterans, and were just 600 strong and 10 maniples of 60. The Romans believed that the triarii's greater experience and reliability compensated for their smaller numbers. The hastati and principes were identically equipped. For offensive arms, they carried two javelins and a sword. The javelins were the famous pilum. It had a barbed point mounted on a slim iron shank, which was itself attached to a stout wooden shaft. Its overall length was about two meters, and it weighed perhaps two kilograms. Hurled by a legionary to its maximum distance of about 28 meters, the pilum could punch through shields and armor to cause serious wounds. If it was blocked by an enemy shield, then one of the pilum's best-known characteristics came into play. Its barbed point lodged in the shield's face, its iron shank bent, and its heavy wooden shaft dragged down the shield, rendering it useless. The main weapon of the Hastati and Principes was the sword. By the Second Punic War, this was the Gladius Hispaniensis, the Spanish sword. Most likely adopted by the Romans from the fierce Celtic warriors of Iberia, the gladius had a blade about 65 centimeters long and 5 centimeters wide that tapered to a long point. It was primarily a thrusting weapon, but could also be used to slash and cut. It was capable of causing devastating injuries. The Roman historian Livy describes the reaction of Macedonian soldiers to the carnage caused by the gladius. But now they saw bodies mutilated by the Spanish sword, arms lopped off at the shoulder or heads separated from bodies with the neck cut right through or entrails lying open and other repulsive wounds. And there was general panic as they began to see what sort of weapon and what sort of men they had to fight. The gladius hispaniensis became the distinctive weapon of Roman legionaries during the remainder of the Republic and through the glory days of the Empire. The armament of the men of the legion's third line, the triarii, had one notable difference. Instead of carrying the pilum, they retained the traditional thrusting spear that the Romans had wielded when they had fought in the phalanx. As we'll see, the most likely reason that spears were kept in the hands of these doughty veterans was to enhance the defensive staying power of the legion. For protection, all Roman legionaries depended principally on their shields, called the scutum in Latin. The legionary shield was oblong, with a curved surface. It measured about 75 centimeters, or two and a half feet wide, and 125 centimeters, or four feet long. It was extremely heavy, weighing 10 kilograms, or 22 pounds. In the middle of its face, the shield had a round protruding boss, or umbo, which a legionary could use to deflect thrusting spears or incoming missiles. The boss could also be employed as a supplementary weapon to smash and batter an enemy. In shape and size, the legionary's shield was strikingly different from the shield of the Greek hoplite. Greek writers dubbed the Roman shield the Therios because it so resembled a door, or thera in Greek. The length and narrowness of the Roman shield attested to its purpose. 
whereas the Greek hoplite's large round shield was designed to guard not just its holder, but also a comrade standing close beside him in the phalanx. The legionary's shield was meant to offer comprehensive individual protection. In addition to the shield, all legionaries wore a helmet. During the Punic Wars, the standard Roman helmet was what is now called the Montefortino type, after the commune in central Italy, where archaeologists excavated numerous examples. Originally a Celtic design, the Montefortino helmet had an elegantly rounded conical shape, which gave excellent protection to the head, but it left its wearer's face largely uncovered. Rounding out the legionary's defensive gear was some form of body armor. By the Punic Wars, the Romans had adopted chain mail from the Celts, consisting of small iron or copper alloy rings linked together. Chain mail was time-consuming and therefore very expensive to make. Consequently, only the wealthiest citizen soldiers could afford a cuirass of chain mail, covering the torso and shoulders. The great majority of legionaries made do with a pectoral, a bronze square about 23 centimeters across that was worn over the chest. In addition to the heavy infantry, a Roman legion also had light infantry and cavalry. The light infantry were called velites and numbered 1,200. The velites were poorer citizens who could not afford full legionary gear or men who were too young to join the hastati. They carried a small shield, wore a helmet, and were armed with a bundle of javelins that were lighter than the pilum. Many velites wrapped animal skins, especially wolf pelts, around their helmets. These skins made their wearers look fiercer. They also might have allowed the legion's officers to identify particularly courageous and enterprising young fighters. A legion's fighting complement was completed by 300 cavalry. Because cavalrymen had to furnish and maintain their own horses, they were invariably members of the Roman aristocracy. For protection, cavalrymen wore a bronze helmet and a metal, mail, or linen cuirass, and carried a small round shield. In terms of weaponry, they were armed with a Spanish sword, thrusting spear, and light javelins. Roman cavalrymen were primarily close-order, close-combat fighters. Because they lacked stirrups, ancient historians once doubted that Roman horsemen could be very effective hand-to-hand combatants. This view, however, has been overturned by the work of the reconstructive archaeologist Peter Connolly on the Roman four-horned saddle. Adopted by the Romans from the Celts, who themselves seem to have taken it from the horse nomads of the Eurasian steppes, this saddle featured four leather-covered pommels on its corners. The two pommels, or horns, at the rear of the saddle acted as shock absorbers and prevented the rider from toppling backwards. The two horns at the front of the saddle curved over the rider's upper thighs, locking him into place. Anne Highland, who is both a classical scholar and an experienced equestrian, conducted experiments on horseback with a reconstructed four-horn saddle. She found that she could thrust with a sword or hurl a javelin with her full strength without becoming unbalanced and losing her seat. Historians now conclude that ancient Roman cavalry could be just as effective in hand-to-hand fighting as stirrup-equipped medieval and later shock cavalry. A Roman legion had an elaborate command structure. A heavy infantry maniple was officered by two centurions, one for each of its component centuries. The centurion of the right-hand century was the senior officer in charge of the maniple. Centurions were appointed or elected from amongst the ordinary soldiers. Each centurion was assisted by junior officers, including an optio, or second-in-command, who stood at the rear of the century, and a tessarius, or guard commander. 
the cavalry and velites had an equivalent set of officers. In overall command of the legion were six military tribunes. One pair of tribunes exercised authority over the legion at a time. However, all of the tribunes were available to help lead the troops in battle. The military tribunes were not professional soldiers. Instead, they were magistrates elected to their posts by the Roman citizen assembly. By modern standards, the tribunes were amateurs who possessed no formal training for command. They depended on the military experience they had gained in various junior capacities. When the Roman Republic embarked on a major war, it mobilized an army for each of the two consuls. A consular army consisted of two citizen legions supported by soldiers from the Italian allies. The allies were organized into two units called alli, or wings. These wings had the same number of infantry as the legions, but the most valuable contribution of the allies was cavalry, which were up to three times more numerous than the Roman citizen horsemen. The ally were commanded by three prefects. Otherwise, our sources give us very little information about the internal organization, equipment, and tactics of the allied troops. They appear to have operated and fought in much the same way as the legions. If the military situation demanded it, the Romans could also deploy secondary armies in addition to the main consular forces. They were commanded by the praetors, the next senior magistrates after the consuls. In a pitched battle, a consular army was drawn up with the infantry of the two Roman legions in the center. An allied wing was stationed on either side of the legionaries. The Roman citizen cavalry from both legions were placed on the army's right flank and the allied horse on the left. The legionary heavy infantry were arranged in a distinctive formation that the Romans called the triplex acius. The maniples of Hastadi and Principes would be formed up as shallow rectangles, 20 men wide and 6 men deep. The triarii maniples would be in columns, 6 men wide and 10 deep. The 10 maniples of first-line Hastati were lined up with a gap separating each maniple. The 10 maniples of the second-line Principes were stationed to cover the gaps between the Hastati maniples. The ten third-line triarii maniples in turn covered the gaps of the principes. From above, the whole formation resembled a checkerboard. The battle began with the velites skirmishing with the enemy. Unlike the heavy infantry, they did not form orderly lines, but were in loose order. I like to think of them as resembling a swarm of bees or a cloud of gnats. The velites employed hit-and-run tactics. They rushed in, hurled their javelins, then ran away. Most often, the Velites' opponents were similar, lightly armed infantry. Ideally, the Velites would drive back these opponents, then harass the enemy's main forces, weakening them before the engagement with the legionary heavy infantry began. But such an outcome was exceedingly rare. In the vast majority of battles, the Velites and the enemy's skirmishers seemed to have neutralized each other. The Velites then withdrew through the gaps between the heavy infantry maniples. What happened to them next is unclear. The Velites seem to have either shifted to the wings to support the cavalry or taken up a position behind the triarii. Whatever the case, they seem to have played little further part in the battle. Out on the Roman army's flanks, the citizen and allied Italian cavalry tended to face the enemy army's horsemen. The main goal of the Romans and Italians was simply to keep their opposite numbers occupied, but if the Romans managed to defeat their foes, they often chased them right off the battlefield. Or, more rarely, the Romans could turn toward the center of the battlefield and attack the enemy infantry. 
the Roman and Allied cavalry really came into their own after an opposing army was defeated. The horsemen would then relentlessly pursue and run down the retreating enemy. Artistic depictions from both the Republican and Imperial periods most frequently show Roman cavalrymen in the act of pursuit, mercilessly cutting down or even trampling the fleeing foe. For the Romans, the outcome of a battle came down to the legionary heavy infantry. They usually faced the enemy's own close order, close combat troops in the center of the battlefield. The Romans always preferred to take the offensive. At a command from the consul, the three lines of heavy infantry legionaries began moving forward at a deliberate, measured pace. To the watching enemy, the small gaps between the maniples would not have been visible at first, so the Romans would have seemed like a walking wall of oval shields. Daylight shone off bronze helmets, shield bosses, the wicked iron heads of Pila. Many legionaries would have fixed horsehair plumes or bunches of feathers to the crowns of their helmets to make themselves look fierce and imposing. These headdresses would have bobbed as the men moved and waved and rippled in the slightest of breezes. From the legions would also have come waves of sound, for it was then the Roman custom to advance noisily. There would have been chanted battle cries, the drumming of javelin shafts against wooden shields, and the bright, blaring challenge of the cornu, the curved war horns that had played Romans into battle since the days when Rome was just a hilltop village on the banks of the muddy Tiber. As the legions drew closer to the enemy, the gaps between the maniples became visible. Thinking that the Romans would have been foolish to leave openings in their line through which opposing troops could penetrate, historians once developed elaborate theories to explain how the gaps were closed just before engagement. But our ancient sources never mention the gaps being closed, and it is now believed that the Romans fought in their open formation, relying on the rear ranks of the maniples and the presence of the second line to discourage enemy penetrations. When the Hastati reached javelin range of the enemy, they began hurling their pila and broke into a charge. What happened next has recently sparked argument and debate among ancient historians. Most historians, military theorists, and wargamers think the Hastati charged into the enemy with their swords, provoking a chaotic series of man-to-man -man duels along the whole battle line. This melee would continue until the Romans or the enemy were beaten and broke into panicked flight. But the ancient military historians Philip Sabin and Adrian Goldsworthy have argued that this dramatic image is more applicable to epic fantasies like Game of Thrones than to the realities of Roman battles. These battles, they point out, according to the ancient sources, often took an hour or even longer to resolve. Both the legionaries and their enemies could not have sustained hand-to-hand -hand combat for more than a few minutes at a time. Legionary arms, particularly the shield, were extremely heavy, and fighting with them was physically exhausting. Even more importantly, hand-to-hand -hand combat was an exceptionally brutal and terrifying experience that exacted a massive mental and emotional toll on participants. Furthermore, casualties in Roman battles were usually very lopsided. Half or even more of the losers were killed, wounded, or taken prisoner, versus about 5% of the victors. In a continuous melee, the victor's casualties would certainly have been heavier. Finally, during the fighting, the opposing lines often surged back and forth over considerable distances, sometimes hundreds of meters. This mobility would have been impossible if both sides were locked in a melee. Thanks to Sabin and Goldsworthy, we have a new model that I think more accurately captures the real face of Roman battle. 
If the enemy did not break and rout immediately at the Romans' onrush, then most of the Hastati stopped short at a safe distance, just outside of weapons reach of the enemy. Unable to summon up the courage and killer instinct to enter hand-to-hand combat, these legionaries instead focused on self-defense. They crouched behind their shields, launched insults, and threw any javelins they had left. But a few Hastati, bolder, more bloodthirsty natural fighters, would charge across the safe distance and into the enemy ranks. They would be followed by a few comrades who were emboldened by their example. This small knot of men would engage in a spasm of ferocious fighting, barging with their shield bosses, thrusting and cutting with their swords. If the Romans were defeated, the survivors would retreat back to their comrades, re-establishing the standoff. If the Romans won, they stepped into the places once occupied by their now dead or wounded foes. The enemy around them would back away, restoring the safe distance. The Stati behind the front ranks largely had a supporting role. They could not reach the enemy with their swords, nor could they push like hoplites on the front rankers to create forward momentum. The size, shape, and prominent boss of the Roman scutum meant it could not be easily rested and pressed into a comrade's back like the Greek hoplon. Instead, Hastati rear rankers tried to intimidate the enemy with their shouts and threats, encouraged the men in front, and dissuaded them from running away, and threw their javelins whenever they could spot a clear target. Above all, they had to be ready to step forward to replace a killed or wounded front ranker. So we have to envision a Roman battle as involving two long lines of men separated by just a few meters, screaming battle cries and insults, gesturing threateningly with their weapons, and throwing missiles. Here and there, again and again, small groups of legionaries or their enemies, either because these men had managed to successfully screw up their courage, or because they were just naturally bolder and fiercer than their comrades, launched themselves across the no-man's land, separating the two lines, and plunged into the opposing ranks to kill or be killed. If one side lost too many of these little encounters, then its whole line would retreat to re-establish a safe, standoff distance. The men would shuffle backwards, with their weapons pointed at their opponents to discourage pursuit. If these small withdrawals were repeated numerous times, then the line's retreat could cover many meters of ground. Yet despite the deadliness and ferocity of each spasm of hand-to-hand combat, casualties during this phase of the battle would still be relatively low. This phase of the battle could therefore be prolonged, even lasting hours. The situation would finally change when one side had its line irreparably breached, was attacked from an unexpected direction, suffered the loss of its commander, or simply accumulated too many casualties and too much fatigue to continue fighting. Panic would then sweep through the entire line. Its cohesion and order would collapse. The losers would turn their backs to their opponents and try to run away. Many would even throw away their shields and weapons to try to flee faster. The victors would surge forward as the majority of troops who had been mainly concerned with their own safety converted their anxieties and fears into bloodlust. They would chase after their enemies, cutting them down relentlessly and mercilessly. The trickle of casualties would now become a torrent. Archaeologists have found very few graves containing the remains of battle dead from the ancient world. Those that have been found, as well as the more numerous finds from the medieval period, testify to the gruesome fates of the men who were run down during the bloody climax of a battle based on hand-to-hand combat. They were brought down by wounds to the body or lower extremities, then finished off by blows to the head. The Romans developed a military system that gave them tremendous advantages in this kind of fighting. 
First, Romans placed great emphasis on virtus, aggression, and bravery. They rewarded successful performance of virtus with fama, renown, and reputation. Roman legionaries therefore had considerable social and cultural inducements to act boldly and courageously. But unchecked showy aggression could be counterproductive in battle, leading to the breakdown of the Roman army's coordination and cohesion. So the Romans balanced virtus with another key cultural value, disciplina, or discipline and control. When they enrolled in the army, Roman citizens agreed to subject themselves to ferocious discipline and to obey the orders of their officers. In battle, legionaries stuck to the ranks of their maniples at all costs. Individual legionaries thus had the scope for bursts of controlled and channeled aggression, knowing that their disciplined comrades literally had their backs. As the historian John Lendon aptly puts it, the true secret of the Manipular Legion was that it made the soldiers in it braver. The Romans derived further advantages from the many officers in the Legion. The key combat officers were the 60 centurions. They earned their rank because of coolness and leadership ability, not individual prowess in fighting. Centurions encouraged their troops and marshaled and led charges into the enemy line. If the Romans faltered, the centurions and their seconds-in-command, the optios, held the legionaries in their places and dissuaded them from panicking. In addition to the centurions, the legion's military tribunes could also lead the troops on the fighting line. The four who were not commanding the legion could move along the line, encouraging the troops, directing local charges, and shoring up defenses at points of crisis. Yet the Romans' greatest advantage derived from their battle formation of multiple lines of troops, the triplex Achaeus. While the first line Hastati fought the enemy, the second line Principes were held back just beyond javelin range. From this position, they were able to prevent any attempts by enemy troops to work their way through the gaps between the Hastati maniples. More importantly, the Principes were ready to enter combat at an opportune moment. They could join the Hastati by filling the gaps between the frontline maniples, or the Principes could allow the Hastati to withdraw through the intervals in their own line, then take over fighting the enemy. The Principes would be physically and psychologically fresh, as well as at full strength. Moreover, they were the best troops in the Legion, men in their physical primes, many of whom would have had previous combat experience. It was the rare Roman enemy indeed who could survive two rounds of fighting against fresh legionaries. The third line of veterans, the Triarii, were also available to commit to battle, but their chief role was to serve as a final insurance policy in case of defeat. While the first two lines engaged the enemy, the Triarii were kept in a defensive posture, kneeling with their left legs extended and their shields resting on their shoulders. If both the Hastati and Principes were beaten, they withdrew through the gaps in the Triarii maniples. Then the Triarii would form a wall with their shields and spears and try to hold off the enemy. According to Livy, the Romans had an adage, ad triarios redise, or to come down to the Triarii, to describe a particularly difficult or desperate situation in everyday life. Fortunately for the Romans, on the battlefield things rarely came down to the Triarii. The Roman military system proved to be devastatingly effective. It was also elegantly, even brutally simple. As Adrian Goldsworthy aptly described, the Roman military system was directed to the single end of applying massive, steadily renewed pressure to the enemy in front. This simplicity was a virtue for Rome's commanding generals, the consuls. 
by the time of the First Punic War, because competition for the office was so keen, most Roman aristocrats could only become consul once. Therefore, they had just a single opportunity to lead a large army. With no formal military training and little experience of army command, most consuls could not conceive of, let alone carry out, intricate tactical maneuvers. The two-way frontal attack of the Manipular Legion provided a battle-winning formula that was also easy to execute. By 280 BCE, the Roman legions had bested all of their adversaries in Italy. That year, however, they faced a new threat from outside the Italian peninsula. To prevent its conquest by Rome, Tarentum, the wealthiest and most powerful Greek city-state in southern Italy, beseeched the help of Pyrrhus, king of Epirus. Today straddling Albania and Greece, Epirus was an ancient Greek kingdom and a traditional rival of Macedonia. Pyrrhus was energetic, ambitious, and a talented commander. Hannibal was supposed to have ranked Pyrrhus as second in generalship only to Alexander the Great. The king of Epirus commanded a superb mercenary army, armed and organized along Macedonian lines. It featured heavy infantry, heavy cavalry, light-armed skirmishers, and, most famously, war elephants. Answering Tarentum's call for help, Pyrrhus crossed the Adriatic, landed in southern Italy, and challenged the Romans. In the battles of Heraclea and Asculum, Pyrrhus defeated the Roman legions, but his army's own losses were extremely heavy. According to the 1st century CE writer and biographer Plutarch, after the Battle of Asculum, one of Pyrrhus's officers congratulated him on his victory. Pyrrhus replied, One more such victory and we are lost. It is from Pyrrhus's battles against the Romans that we get the term Pyrrhic victory to describe a success so costly it is tantamount to defeat. Following a detour to Sicily to fight the Carthaginians, Pyrrhus returned to Italy and was fought to a draw by the Romans at the Battle of Beneventum. He then retreated to Epirus, abandoning Tarentum to Rome. By seeing off Pyrrhus, the Roman legions proved they were a match for even the most sophisticated and advanced armies of the Mediterranean world. The Roman Republic's military system and the legions were exceptionally formidable, but they did have a handful of weaknesses. One was the impermanence of the army of the Roman Republic. Unlike under the Empire, legions under the Republic were not permanent units, maintained during both peace and war. Instead, the Republic levied new legions at the beginning of a war and then disbanded them when the war ended. Although recruits for the legion often had prior military experience, it still took considerable time and effort to train them, get them used to working in units, and accustom them to their officers. Roman armies therefore started off raw and inexperienced, and only became more efficient and effective over time. Another key weakness of the Roman military system was that it could be a bit too rigidly predictable on the battlefield. An opponent who had experience fighting the Romans, or who had carefully studied their methods, could be highly confident that the Romans would make their main effort in the center of the battlefield, with a two-way of attack by the citizen legions. An opponent blessed with nerve, tactical ability, and efficient, high-quality troops could use this predictability to turn the tables on the legions with deadly results. In the next part of the podcast, I will turn my attention to the origins of conflict between Carthage and Rome. As we'll see, despite even what some ancients believed, there was nothing inevitable about the Punic Wars. I will then trace the course, conclusion, and consequences of the First Punic War. <laughs>